my little Twitter community is not my client base. My client base is the people who follow that community and identify me as a solutions provider, someone who thinks out the box, someone who is willing to give a second opinion with no issues. And so that's a very good point. That's who your audience should be, is not the person who you're scrapping with on social media. Right, and right. I that's... won't lie to you, like it has sometimes puts a toll on my brain because there's only so much you can take, so much criticism. Right. <laughs> but uh, we're going to get to that. Like, I'm, I'm not big on Twitter, but I'm going to go check you out now because I'm intrigued. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Scott Peckford here. Today on the show, I have Jake Abrahamowitz. He's a mortgage broker based out of GTA. Last year, he did $200 million in mortgages, and he had a single assistant. He now has two. Look at him go. Awesome member of our I Love Mortgage Brokering community, always sharing, and just a great guy. And pretty interesting discussion. So the first thing we talked about was what you need to consider if you're changing companies. So what things do you have to think about if you have to change companies? And he gives some great advice there. We talked about variable versus fixed. So what is the best strategy? And he has a really simple test that he uses to determine a client's risk tolerance. It's kind of genius, actually. And then finally, he shares a ton of advice on process and efficiency and four pieces of advice any new broker would be absolutely wise to follow. So check out this episode with Jake. And thanks again for being a listener of the show. Hey, Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me again, Scott. Love the ILMB community. ILMB yeah. for life, as you know. <laughs> yeah, ILMB for life. We're going to get some shirts made up of that or something. That'll be fun or mugs or something. So people don't know who you are. A lot of people know you from our Facebook group. And so tell me a little bit about Jake. How long have you been in the mortgage business? And then last year, sort of, what did you do in production? Yeah, so I've been very fortunate. 18 years plus in the business. Long time ago, I was introduced to it. And I've been at it ever since, always kind of growing my volumes as much as possible. And things have just done, you know, better and better. The pandemic helped a lot more than I thought it would, but so did other things like efficiencies, working from home, et cetera, before the pandemic. So yeah, it's been 18 plus years now. It's been a while. Right. And then, so in terms of last year, how was 2020 for you? You don't mind Record me year. That? Yeah, no, absolutely. Record year, over 200 million in volume myself. Just myself and my assistant, my associate now, her name is Dallas. So uh, she came on board five years ago. It was the best decision I made. My former broker, John, was always pushing me to get an assistant. And he said, don't spend your free time playing more tennis. Get an assistant to find more business. And I did that. And uh, she's been outstanding. So because of her, we hit 200 plus last year, just under 320 files, I believe. This year, first quarter was already 90 million. So things have gotten a lot better. I grew my team. I hired an amazing underwriter from one of our lenders, which was a very tough decision for me to to try to get her on board. But the lender and I, we kind of, you know, things worked out very well. The lender was great. The underwriter's great. The support was great. So kind of growing, which is great. We got a couple of different topics that we're going to cover, but I got to ask this follow-up question when you said your production, where does your business come from? Finding 330 files. Well, I know lots of people in the business 18 years and they're not doing, you know, 300 plus files a year. So tell me. Okay. Great question. I'll tell you first where it comes from internally, and then I'll tell you where it technically comes from. Internally, it comes from my background, me growing up, having no money whatsoever, single father worked 18 hours a day, immigrant guy, It comes from me knowing where I never can get back to. It comes from me now having a nine-year-old, 10-year-old, and I will have to do everything for him that I didn't have, that I experienced. I don't want him to ever experience. No lunch, no food, crappy life, you know, like it comes from that. 
So right. my insatiable appetite to keep growing my volume comes from that, never at the expense of someone else. What that means is if I see a deal and if another broker has screwed it up, I will A, fix it, and B, try to tell that broker, here's what happened, or I'm not here to kill the competition. I'm here to play in a sandbox fairly and equitably with everyone. I want everyone to succeed. And then where does it come from? Technically, it comes from 60% realtors. I love my agents, believe it or not. It comes 20% from social media, like on Twitter, I fight every single day and the people who reply back on Twitter hate my guts and call me all sorts of names, but the real fans email me. Hey, I'm too shy to reply on Twitter, but I need to help with my mortgage. I need to help with my mortgage. Twitter is my absolute boom. Instagram, a little bit less. Facebook, nothing. But Twitter and Instagram are my two ways of getting as much business on social media because it's really my voice. It's really me. Uh, And then, of course, my clients, my referral partners, my clients within the book, Referrals are another 20, 30% easily, and it's growing like crazy. But realtors are still a top category for me, and that's fine. That's the way I've done my business, and I love it. Okay, so there's something somebody said once, that there's no money in the middle. So which meaning that if you're kind of like this, really, you don't stand out, you're on Twitter, because you'll push and you'll fight with people, you're going to push some people away, but you're going to attract other people, right? Because yeah, and I'm not, and yeah. like for the record, I'm not negative on Twitter. Well, I am sometimes when I get into fights, but I don't have an agenda on there. And I'm not like anti-lockdown, anti-mask. Like I'm not taking some crazy things that I've seen some of my colleagues do. And I think you are crazy. You're not a scientist, you know, <laughs> stick to the script. My tweets right. are about mortgages. And I would say something like, hey, I helped this buyer today. She went to a broker who only got her 540. I got her 600 because I was able to do ABC. 10 messages down will be, you're a jerk. How can you put her into too much debt? You're a loser, da, da, da. And then you know what? I get an email saying, how did you help that person? Because I need that as well. Well, it's because I use two-year bonus, blah, 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 whatever the situation is. So yeah, I'm attracting people who are looking for solutions. Other realtors as well. Hey, I saw you on Twitter. Sounds like you know what you're doing. I need someone. So the people who reply back to me on Twitter are the ones who don't like me, but the real ones who like me are the ones. See, this is this is actually there's a little lesson right in this. So social media, the people that are responding are not necessarily your customers. Absolutely not. But they're the ones that make me look better when I explain to them why they are wrong. She wanted to be put into debt. I'm helping her understand how in a Toronto market, 540 to 600 makes a big difference. And then the people replying, you're bang on. My little Twitter community is not my client base. My client base is the people who follow that community and identify me as a solutions provider, someone who thinks out the box, someone who is willing to give a second opinion with no issues. And that's a very good point. That's who your audience should be, is not the person who you're scrapping with on social media. And I won't lie to you, like it has sometimes puts a toll on my brain because there's only so much you can take so much question right. <laughs> but uh, we're going to get to that like, how are you I'm, I'm, I'm not big on twitter but i'm going to go check you out now because i'm intrigued so i've got to check out jake on twitter at, okay at mortgage jake at mortgage jake all right so let's talk about it we had a couple different topics the first one is is i wanted to you know we had talked about this before we got on the show but like if somebody's thinking about changing companies you've done it a little while ago and it's a big decision. It's not something people just like take lightly, but like, so what are some of the things they need to think about or consider before they make that kind of move? Hey, that's a great question. So I spent 13 or so years at my previous brokerage. I had the time of my life, you know, the most amazing people, a real kind of family environment and atmosphere, but I felt like, and I could be wrong, could be right. You do your gut decision. 
I felt like I kind of outgrew maybe where I was. So I looked for maybe a slightly bigger home with the same kind of community support vibe that I got. And it was not an easy decision. And a lot of people think about it and it's almost like a marriage. You know, it really is. Especially yeah, it's like, get, it's like getting a divorce or something, right? It's You're like, like getting a yeah. divorce. Yeah. And it's, you know, the different stages of grief and we all kind of go through that. So certain things that I would tell you is number one, always go back to where you are and try to work things out. If you can, you know, propose it kind of, why is it not working? What can we help? What can we solve, et cetera? Always work with the people you're with now that you've given a lot of time to, because they deserve that respect, right? Second, your data, a very important piece. Make sure that in your new contract, your old contract, you understand who owns what. Number three, contracts themselves. Read them closely, hire a lawyer, spend the money, ask anything and everything you can, because these are all you know, tangible economic relationships. Your brokers put a lot of time and effort into you, not for you to just get up and leave. They want to see a result of that investment, whether you're their best friend or not. They want something out of that and you want something out of it. So, you know, relationships are based on pen and paper these days, not handshakes anymore. So be very clear with what's in your contract, what you're allowed to do, not allowed to do, et cetera. And yeah, and then just, you know, make the move as and when you can, if you want to. And if not, don't. But those are the kind of two, three things I would say is give the first people a shot, try to work things out, review your contracts, see who owns the data and figure out a way of migrating things without losing a lot of business or issues in the migration process. Right. And the new place that you're joining, make sure it's really the best place for you. The last thing you want to do is join a new place after, you know, untangling from one and then be like, ah, this wasn't a home for me. Interview, talk to as many people, talk to the agents that are on the new team, talk to your lenders, your BDMs, your underwriters, like everyone who knows. Yeah, you, you're going to have to do a full 360 on them. Yeah, yeah. but it has to be very confidential because you they're you know, other people know you're leaving. So right, you right. have this fine balance of like, who can I trust? Who can I ask, right? And then yeah. you make the move if it's the right move for you. And if not, you don't. And, you know, that's what happened with me. So it is what it is. I grew and right. uh, here I am at Premier. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so another topic I wanted to cover was fixed versus variable. What is your take on that right now? How do you answer that? So I'm going to start here. What do you personally have in your own mortgage? All variable except for one. It's an alternative okay. market. Okay, so now tell me about your thoughts, your philosophy on fixed versus variable with clients. Absolutely opposite of what I just said. It's not all one size fits all for everybody. I get into fights with Dustin and Jim all the time about it. Right <laughs> now, the last six months, all my clients who got 1.29, 149, five-year closed. And I remind them every six months, look, rates are 199 now. How happy are you that you listen to me? Of course, it depends on the situation, big bank versus model line, conversion, portability, all those things. But what I tell a lot of my clients is when I do the process of the intake call, 15 minutes, say, how do you invest your money? Do you invest in Bitcoin, crypto, FANG stocks, very leveraged ETFs? Are you a savvy investor or are you a mutual fund, broad-based S&P 500, Dow Jones, safe and steady? You don't check your account balances more than once a year, twice a year. No, you know, Jake, I'm very conservative with my investments. You should be very conservative with your borrowing as well, if it makes sense. Yeah. Penalties aside, et cetera. Now, I know Dustin's going to kill me for saying penalties aside. Of course, I incorporate that conversation. Of course, I look at where they are in the life stage. Brand new couple. She's about to get pregnant. They're about to have a baby. Something's going on. 
520 square foot condo, yeah, five-year fix with a big bank, maybe not the best option. But we look deeper as well. Portability clauses are much more important to review with big banks, whereas with the model lines, they're not as strong with the port and increase. So right now, of course, it depends on the client, but I'm telling people who are okay with variable, sure, go variable, but you must set your payment 1% higher. Set it at the 2.35 rate versus 135. And if you don't, then variable isn't for you unless there's a really good reason why, as in I'm selling in two years and I don't know if I'm moving again. So that's my long answer is, how do you invest? And is it the right move for you? And where are we in the rate cycle? And rates are gonna go up sooner than we think. And we can't say, cause I do it, you should do it. That's my answer. And then I give the people the choice and then they decide. So you basically use it as like a psychological litmus test of how they, okay, this is a side note to this. Do you invest in those Bitcoin and those other things? Is that something you do as well? Very small, very small crypto holdings. <laughs> less than 2% of my portfolio. I'm a very big fan of FANG stocks, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, ARK ETF. So yeah, I invest in the kind of high growth, not home run stuff, like not startup, you know, uh, early stage, but like I invest in the high growth stuff. I don't buy any boring mutual funds with high MERs. I love stocks, so. Right, okay. So I'm a risk tolerant guy. If my client is not risk tolerant, they're not going to be risk tolerant with the Bank of Canada waffling in the wind. 2022, no, 2024, no, 2023. Like, I think they're not suited for that kind of investment with only half a percent difference on average in rate. It's too small to go variable for that kind of person. For that kind of person, right, right. So is there any other considerations you'd have between the two? So somebody's listening, okay, it makes sense. I like this idea of using like a stock framework for a psychological test. But is there any other tools you use or conversations that help people get more clarity? What if they're not certain still? If they're still not certain, you know, Ron Butler and I spoke about this before. And he said it best. He's like, I give you the keys to the bus. You drive the bus. I tell you what I would do based on my you know, recommendations. You ultimately pick. If they're not certain, then that to me screams that they're concerned. And that to me says you should go fixed. Because if they're like, oh, you know, but what if? And, and I read this and that. I say they should go fixed if they're uncertain with, of course, the penalty discussion being a huge one when I sell big bank mortgages. All right. So it makes a lot of sense to me use the stock model to determine somebody's sort of psychological risk tolerance. And they look like they're a fixed type client. What does that conversation look like when you know that, hey, it's actually a bank. I'm not trying to bash banks. You just need to understand the product. What does it look like so that they understand the limitations of that and the penalty? I always use 4% of the mortgage balance as your very potential penalty in the middle of the five-year fixed term. And then I always highlight the very good portability clauses of the big bank, which will let you blend and increase without a penalty, whether it's TD's blended, whether it's Scotia step mortgage. Listen, I know that people have life situations, loss of job, divorce. I don't sell on fear. Unlike some of my colleagues who say 50% of people end up get divorced in a conversation with a client, I've never, and I will never say something like that. I make them sign waivers in my disclosures that say, by going fixed, I understand my penalty can be as high as this, approximate numbers. But I look at where they are in the life cycle. Someone who's buying a 600 square foot home, three hours away from their office, probably not a perfect person to go fixed because probably the work from home paradigm will shift. Someone who's buying a cottage, I don't know about fixed right now. They might realize this isn't for me. Someone buying a condo that's 800 square feet, two bedroom, and they're a single guy and just getting engaged, probably won't need a house for three to five years at least. 
those are the other kind of things. Where are you in your career, your credit cycle, et cetera? What's your plan with this place? Then it depends on where they answer. Okay. So if you look at your book of business from last year, the 300 plus loans, how would you say that split variable? Uh, definitely last year, definitely skewed towards fixed versus variable. Definitely fixed monoline stuff versus fixed bank stuff. And I say skewed like heavily 80% were fixed last year. Again, the rates were insane. And you would have been crazy to go variable at 1.4. You could have gone fixed at 1.3. Anytime that spread is less than half a percent, I think you're insane going fixed instead of variable. Okay, makes a lot of sense. All right, so the last topic that we were going to chat about is how much did your volume grow 2020 over 2019? So, uh, like from 170 to 205 ish. So, okay, know. so that was actually that's manageable, I guess to say. It's great, but it's manageable. I'm not trying to say it's like, oh, that's nothing. No, it's something, but it's manageable. Growth. Yeah, but like the year before is like 140, 170, 205. Now we're tracking for like 260, 270. It's an explosive growth. It's crazy growth. Yeah, that's how the numbers have been. It wasn't like from 100 to 200. Right. Like right. some people are going from 10 to 25, from 20 to 40. And they're literally like, holy smokes, what am I doing? How do I manage this? Yeah. When you double, it creates a lot, but you're adding, you know, 10% or something. Okay. So what kind of changes did you have to make in the last year to accommodate COVID and all this stuff? I'm just curious what kind of adaptations you so made. The business? biggest problem that I've had is that my wife works full time offsite at her office that she has to go to. It's her business. So it's just managing my relationship with my nine-year-old, now 10-year-old, then eight-year-old during the pandemic. That balance was the toughest. Definitely time blocking. I saw someone posted on the group about what's the best time blocking stuff. Calendly, I literally never pick up the phone anymore. If you don't have an appointment with me in Calendly, I won't answer the call unless we have a scheduled visit because I have to manage my time better like that. I've also tried my very best to weed out, you know, the real applications from the just kicking the tires applications, if I'm giving you 15 minutes of my time, it's very valuable. You're going to get as much value as possible out of that. But I want that person to follow through with an application after. If they don't, you know, I'm not going to chase you like crazy. Done a lot of like client stuff, like magic shows with clients, little Zoom sessions. We're doing a beer tasting with my realtors. I worked from home before and I always will work from home. Another thing Dustin and I totally disagree with. I love working from home. It's very flexible for me to run my business. It's not for everyone, but you know, I don't have like normal hours. Like I still work weekends, Saturday mornings, I'll take calls till 12. So when people are available two nights a week, I'll take calls until nine. Otherwise three nights a week, no calls after five. And then Monday mornings, no calls until noon. And then Fridays from 2 PM, no calls onwards. I'm managing my two amazing staff with me, Devin and Dallas. I emphasize life versus work. If they call me or email me on a weekend, I'm very grateful for it. I never ask for it, but I won't lie to you, Scott, this year mentally, I always thought of myself as a real strong mental guy, like mental illness. What's that? Depression. Man, like a lot of thoughts go into my brain of how depressed I am about like not meeting people and being social and it's been tough. And I tell anyone like, if a stubborn old bastard like me goes through this mentally, you know, it's all out there and we should all try to kind of keep it one another afloat or engaged or check up on people just to see how things are doing. There's a lot of stress. Our underwriters, mm -hmm. our BDMs, our VPs, our credit. We just kind of sometimes just take a deep breath. Go for a walk. Go in nature. Be amongst the trees. Leave your phone in the car. Stop checking nonstop. Like disconnect as much as you're connected so that you get that balance. Because it's been really tough, man. I won't lie to you. It's been a tough slog to grow, to hire, to train, 
to keep clients happy, to keep referral sources happy, and to keep all the expectations going. I literally have like 10 questions from that thing you just shared with me. Okay, so a statement first. I have a friend who's a paramedic. He's been a paramedic for 20 years. And he told me 80% of his calls are mental health right now. Like that's all they're dealing with. So I'm totally on point with you on that in terms of the psychological, relational, emotional impact of COVID is enormous. And we are blessed to be making money in this time when a lot of people aren't. You know, we're making more money than we've ever made. And a lot of times our expenses are down because we're now at the office and all these other things are like, it's craziness, right? But yes, it's a great point about, you know, just trying to be there for each other and be kind. Okay, so you talked about you only take calls that are scheduled, right? So you sound like Jim Lucas does a, you know, 10 minute discovery call and then give me an app to go forward. Is that your process? Because I want to know a little bit, because you're doing a lot of, dude, you're doing a ton of volume for the number of people that you have. It's crazy to me. Yeah, it's, it's very efficient. Like we run an efficient shop. So Scott, you're introduced to me over email. Hey, Jake, meet Scott. Scott, meet Jake. Scott wants to buy a house. No problem. Easy. Fill up my mortgagejake.com application, which is not Finmo. It's not Velocity. It's custom created type form because it's conversational. I will die on that hill. I get the application. It's a very quick 10 questions. You fill it out. And then second thing, book a call. Hey, Scott, got your info. Boom. Based on what you've told me, here's what I can do. Can I pull credit? Yes. Okay, great. Send me W2s, T4s, yada, yada. Devin and I pick up the application, review it. One more email. Hey, you're pre-approved. You're ready. These are your parameters, guidelines. Don't do this, do that, do this, don't do that. And then I kind of follow up every couple of weeks. Hey, how's your house hunt going? And, and you just follow by email with those people? I'll email follow-up. And then they buy a place. Obviously, we always get engaged with the realtor. I want to set that connection up from the start to show them how awesome we are. They buy a place. Boom. Another Calendly link called, hey, guess what? We got the house. Another 15-minute call. Okay, great. You bought it. We have these pre-approvals. Has anything changed? Let's go. Next, Devin gets approval. Approval comes in. One last call if they want to discuss the terms. If not, because they're comfortable, because I've already preluded all the terms in an email, then Dallas will send the DocuSign package to get whatever conditions are left. She lands the plane, and Devin and I aren't catching more fish and, you know, finding them. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And then, so what would you say time for file is? Two hours? Right. That's the only way. Like, honestly, you said something about weeding out tire kickers. So how do you, and Jim is ruthless about this too. So yeah. I'll give anyone 15 minutes. I'll talk to anyone about 15 minutes. But then if I ask for a consent to check credit, if I get a lot of, uh, then I go, okay, cool. You're not ready. I'm here whenever you want me to check credit. That is when I kind of see like, okay, these people are interested. And then of course I go through the six reasons that credit gets hurt or not. And checking is like the sixth reason, whatever. And then the second thing that I've really done is Before I send for a commitment, I am very clear. You are committing to this deal with this lender. I will not send this deal unless you write to me back. I am committing to this deal because I want to see that in writing because people still walk away. They still bail on me. Lost a couple deals last week to committed people. Yeah, I saw you post on that. You're like, why do I still get angry? But it's because it's like they're actually going against their word. I mean, they literally said, I'm in 100%. Oh, I'm not in anymore. So. Yeah, hey, you know, it's weird to lose three files, close 100, and you're mad of three. It's just human nature. But yeah, I use very strong language in that regard. And I explain why. I have two people. They work underneath me. Their time is valuable. So is mine. Not to mention my amazing lenders, how important their time is right now. And I explain how busy they are. So yeah, it's just the language that we use. I don't heavily incorporate an exclusivity agreement yet but I've started to use it slowly because I think it's the way that we have to go in order to get these people to really commit to us and follow through. Right. 
Yeah, so it sounds like you do a verbal on the credit check. Can I check your credit? Is that what you say? To them? Uh, no, I, I asked them that quick. Can you send me a T4 pay stub and just send me a quick consent that I can check credit? So what's a warning sign that this person's like a tire kicker? What would they say to you? Something like yeah, that? you know what? I'm not comfortable you checking my credit at this time. Even after the conversation we have, how I say to people like this, I say, hey, Scott, you have $800 in your wallet. Imagine there's a one in a hundred chance that you lose a dollar if I check your credit. Oh, really? It's that? Yeah, it's literally statistically that small, essentially. If they're still like, no, I don't want to check credit, can I send you my credit? Like, no, I'm not looking at your Equifax from Mogo or from other third-party sites. It's not the same thing. That's when I kind of know they're not serious. I'm not proceeding further. I tell the referral partner, look, Scott's not ready. He doesn't want me to check credit. Oh, great. I'll check in with him. Always this happens a day later. Hey, check my credit. <laughs> right. Sometimes want, real Okay. How many realtors would you say refer you? 60. 60. Yeah. Yeah. At least say I have 220 that I email out my own newsletter that I write myself. And then I get 60 on average, giving me at least one deal a year. My goal is one deal a business day at least. And soon my goal will be one deal a day. Once I get to one deal a day, I think I'll be extremely happy. 365 deals a year. That's my goal. Right. And then you'll be like, well, what if I did two? No, no. <laughs> well, no, then I'll, uh, I'm 43. You know, I've got like another 20 years in this business. God help me if I can. But, you know, I'm setting up a team so that I can start to offload some work and have more time because it is taking a lot of time, which mm -hmm. is great. But it won't be when the world is open up again. This is the thing that I'm worried about. A lot of brokers, like they've shifted. And I have this great friend of mine named George Hugh who's like one of the smartest guys that I know. And he runs an office and he's got an office and people always came to visit him. And I'm like, how will you do that? I thought the other day, I'm like, hey, George, how's it going? And he's like, Jake, I'm so busy. It's so efficient to work from home. And I'm like, exactly. Well, what's going to happen when the world is open up again? And I want to have a three-hour lunch with Scott because he's in town and I can't wait to meet him and all this. But I'm still doing 250 deals a year. Or sorry, 365. I better have a system. Yeah, yeah you won't be able to get away. Home. Right. I'm right. not going to Raptor games. I'm not going to road trips. I'm not going camping. I'm not doing nothing. Because I'm all doing working. Well, if I have more time to me, it may be a challenge for us brokers shifting that expectation. Because you've worked like crazy for 18 months and now you want to take a break. How are you going to do it? Okay, I got a couple of other questions on efficiencies. Is that okay? Uh -huh. Okay, so how many lenders would you say you work with, like the bulk of your business? Because I have a suspicion, but I don't want to. Yeah, know. yeah, yeah. Uh, five. Five are my like closest, nearest, nearest. My number one monoline lender is MCAP, followed by. RMG, kind of sister companies. Merrick's, definitely a big one. Jeff Charco, awesome underwriter there. And then TD Scotia, love them like crazy. They're outstanding. So they got, got those top five. Love Equitable, love Home. Those are my B guys all day, every day. So seven, if you include the B side. Trying to do more stuff with other B lenders, but I just find the fit for my client is great with Equitable and Home. Credit Union, Meridian, huge with their rates. 45-day turnaround. Not easy to deal with. Amazing lender, but you know, tough right now with their time turnaround. But they kind of come in and out based on mm -hmm. rate. But those unions, I always found that they have a pool of money, and when they have the money, they're like, "Woo!" They'll lend it yeah. out, baby, and then they're like, "Holy crap, we're out of money!" Now we've got we're to like get her. And yeah. yeah, or you know what? We're not taking refis anymore because you've killed us. Too much refi business. So then you stress test will hurt them even more because there's so many people that won't qualify. But yeah, those are like my top kind of five to seven A and B mix. And then what percentage of your business is B? Not even 20, like 15. 
15% max. Has that changed at all in the last like five years or has it always been consistent? Not really, man. I always attract the 750 credit, 125K income plus bonus, 20% down under a million first time buyer or 5% down in surrounding areas, 750 purchase. I attract that kind of customer client. I don't have a lot of B deals. I wish I had more love the B business, but I don't have a ton of it. Right. Okay. So this is the last question I'll ask you. So what advice would you give to a new person? So they're starting out and, you know, they're not 18 years in with, you know, 60 referral partners. So what advice would you give a new person? I'm going to say the following. Number one, try to break this down, this business as easily as possible based on how many deals you need to do in your first month in order to get the equivalent of what you just left. So if you were making 75K a year, that's roughly what, six grand, 6,200 a month. How many deals do you need to get in the first month to pay for the equivalent amount of work? Number two, you got to give yourself three to six months runway. You got to give yourself a full financial head start. Save up the six months worth of salary to get really started, I think. Otherwise, you might kind of waffle. You might go in and out, which is tough. Right. Three, you go on social media. Do not post articles without giving me your viewpoint. How many brokers go on there and be like, look at this Globe and Mail article? Who cares? What do you have to say about it? Tell me your points of view. Why is it important? Why should I talk to you? If you're on Twitter, if you're on Instagram, why should I talk to you over the 10,000 other people that are out there? The first few months of your business will be amazing because you'll get a lot of friends and family, but you might also take it personally when your friends and family say, you know what? I don't feel comfortable you handling my business. Partner with someone that's a mentor, that's someone who's been at this for 10, 15, 20 years and hand them the business off and say, hey, guess what? You don't want to work with me. That's cool. It's all personal. Let me pass you on to my colleague, Bill. Bill has been around forever. He's my mentor. He won't share any personal details with me if you run into that problem. Number four, we're in a pandemic. It's really busy. Even rookies are making a crazy killing right now. Don't expect that to continue. You know, don't overspend. Don't overinvest. Be smart with your money. Save, save, save. Invest it, invest it, invest it. But don't blow it on cool stuff like a nice fast car and all that other stuff. Because when the business starts to get a little slower, you won't have that huge book of business. So those are just some things. But ultimately, like, try to find a brokerage that's going to have a good mentorship program. And I think that will help a lot. I get a lot of young, new, amazing, smart agents reaching me. And I'm disappointed that their broker is not answering the most basic questions because they're too busy or what have you. Mm -hmm. You're not in the right place. Maybe there needs to be a better training overall. Maybe there's, something's missing in the yeah, industry. Yeah, we're putting some thought to that whole, like what you're talking about there is. Yeah, I totally agree with you. So we're setting people up for failure, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, so brother, this has been a great conversation. We got to do this again another time, maybe in a quarter or two, and we'll reconnect and we'll see what's going on in Jake's world. This is like Jake's world episode, because this was a lot of fun to chat about. And I knew you did a lot of volume. Your business model is similar to Jim's. The biggest difference is he's got like two realtors you know, and it's a database and corporate contracts, your like real estate agents are a big part of your business, which I didn't know that. So pretty huge cool. part, huge part. They do the door knocking, they do the cold calling, they set me up for success. And then I do the same. So, and I will say I've let go of a few realtors this year, last year too, when you're not synced with me mentally, and if I can't break bed with you, I don't want to do business with you. That's how I look at it with my relationships. So these realtors are my friends. I like taking their calls. So that's an important piece. If you hate the person calling you for business, there will be 10 others behind that person that will do the same. Just break that cycle and find people you like to work with. Okay, man. Awesome. Great chat with you, Jake. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for everything you do for the community. 
Thank you to the community as well. You guys are so helpful on ILMB. It's truly one of the best places that I visit. It's my number one, like, check bookmark. I appreciate all the people with such good feedback. Love this community. So thanks, everyone. Be safe and be well and be strong. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.